I'm Elizabeth Esty for the Emergency Medical Minute. We're excited to present our new limited series, Epidemic Meets Pandemic, in which we investigate how the nation's opioid epidemic has been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Over the course of this series, we'll hear from a harm reductionist, an addiction medicine physician, a Denver police narcotics sergeant, and two people currently in recovery. Unfortunately, the opioid epidemic and the COVID-19 pandemic are likely not going anywhere soon. The Emergency Medical Minute remains committed to providing education to help combat these health crises. In our first episode, we'll catch up with Lisa Rayville, Executive Director of the Harm Reduction Action Center in Denver, to learn how COVID has impacted her facility's daily operations as well as the lives of her clients. So I'm a big fan and I'm bummed that we are not recording this on May 18th, which I hear was Lisa Rayville Day. <laughs> Absolutely. It's nice to get a day, you know? Yes. And, and it made me think. So here at the EMM, it's Lisa Rayville week. So, <laughs> um, But how do you celebrate a day named by the mayor after you? Like, how do you celebrate your own day? Are there complexities there? <laughs> well, actually, it's easier than you'd think it would be. So last year when I got it, so I got it for my my staff was able to get it through the mayor's office for my 10 years of tyrannical reign as the executive director of the Harm Reduction Action Center. And last year it was on a Saturday. So there was a lot of day drinking with mimosas, reality television. My husband made my favorite meal, which I thought was very nice. Mm-hmm. And then this year it was a Monday, which was really nice to be able to be with folks that I know, love and serve. So that was really fun, too. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) It's a Rayville week. Um, (laughs) You are, of course, a frequent guest on the Emergency Medical Minute, and many of our listeners know you well. But for those who don't, could you introduce yourself? And for listeners who are really late to the game, explain what harm reduction is? Sure. My name is Lisa Rayville. I'm the executive director of the Harm Reduction Action Center. We're Colorado's largest public health agency that works specifically with people who inject drugs. We've been an agency for 18 years. We've had the ability to exchange syringes for the last eight. So we had to be very clever about how we worked with folks before that. Harm reduction uh, reduces the harms associated with really anything, right? So sand in a playground is harm reduction. Designated drivers reduces the harms associated with drunkenness. What we're going to talk about today is reducing the harms associated with drug use right? Mm -hmm. In a magical world, there'd be no drugs, but we live here and there's one safe thing that folks can do today. And I think we can all agree that if stigma, shame, and incarceration worked with drug use, we'd have wrapped this up years ago. All that's done is drive use underground where people have gotten preventable chronic diseases such as HIV, hepatitis C, and died of overdose. So we're doing something different. Bottom line, what I like about harm reduction, it means we're rooting for you. How can I support you for a healthier and safer you today? And as a physician, it just it so often when I first heard you speak, it occurred to me that so much of medicine is harm reduction. Yes. You know, we're keeping people safer, whether they have diabetes or addiction or whatever is going on. And I just so appreciate what you do. We're hoping today to hear from you just about particularly about how COVID has impacted both what the Harm Reduction Center does and the lives of your clients. And of course you, because, you know, we we obviously have two epidemics that are colliding here and every indication that COVID is going to make these, the opioid epidemic worse, Mm -hmm. isolation, unemployment, the virus Mm -hmm itself all on top of a system that doesn't treat people with addiction or behavioral health problems, let alone provides housing and basic health care and a living wage. And I just, you know, get pretty pessimistic about the future, but want to hear from you what it's like on the front lines. 
Sure. So it's a different time than it was even eight weeks ago, right? And so we do serve many people that are housed. However, we do serve many people that are unhoused. So for the first couple of weeks, there was a lot of confusion because a lot of our folks who are unhoused don't have access to social media or the news. And remember back then, everything was changing daily and you could go down a rabbit hole being like, what the fuck is going on? Um, Mm -hmm. So a lot of our folks were getting factual health information from us right? They trust us. We've been giving out factual health information for years. Um, you know, it's, it's not, uh, you couldn't have had it before. You're not uh, immune to it. You know, so like, what does asymptomatic mean? Stuff like that. We, our folks had a, a really hard time with these, you know, with the whole stay at home, right? Because if you don't have a home, how can you do that? Wash your hands with soap and water for 20 seconds. A lot of our folks didn't have running water or soap. So we were very pleased to be able to have access to a hand washing station that the city provided for us that's out front of our agency 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So it's like the hand washing stations at festivals. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's been particularly powerful for folks to be able to access with that. Our drop-in has been abbreviated, so folks can't hang out in here. However, we are very busy, uh, so we are still serving folks, and we do have a small percentage of folks that are newly relapsed, right? Um, isolation, anxiety, newly unemployed, newly homeless. So we, we're dealing a lot with that, too. We also have access, of course, to naloxone, which saves people's life in the event of an opioid overdose. We're continuing to have conversations about the overdose crisis in general because it's not just opioids. In Colorado meth, cocaine, and crack overdoses are up, stimulant overdoses. And a lot of people who use stimulants don't know that they can overdose on stimulants. We also have fentanyl. We were never too cute to think fentanyl wouldn't be here. And we know that between 2018 and 2019, the fentanyl overdose deaths in Denver tripled. We also know that the 2019 Colorado overdose deaths are up. It's the most Colorado has ever seen at 1,062. And we do know that there are fentanyl overdoses that happened in the state of Colorado too. So you're right. We are running in parallel with two pandemics, really the overdose crisis and then COVID. So really trying to have those conversations with folks and reduce the harms associated, right? And what's interesting about COVID is it's a lot of harm reduction stuff that's happening. Masks, right? Staying at home washing your hands with soap and water. In a magical world, there'd be no COVID, but we live here and there's one safe thing that we can do today to try to prevent the acquisition of COVID. Yeah, it does. It does seem like one of the, I think, false choices offered out in the media has been between protecting health and protecting the economy. And I think you know, it, it seems to me that your population, that your the, the harm reduction center already saw lots of despair and deaths of despair. But I wonder your take both as a as the director and as just a person on how you balance the shutdown and public health versus the economy. And noting also that people who with that addiction, particularly people without housing, are particularly susceptible to COVID. How do you balance that? Well, it's a scary time in general, right? I'm so thankful that we're considered an essential worker and that we can continue to push forward when other places just simply can't. What I think is interesting in the public health realm is a lot of people, there's no glory in public health. <laughs> so I yeah. don't, I don't uh, admire or I don't, you know, I, I don't know, not admire. I don't, uh, I think the public health officials that are having to come out and make these difficult decisions are having a very difficult time because a lot of people have never had public health impact them like this before, 
you know, if they're housed and they, they, you know, they have a job and they have money and they have a support system, they've probably been fine for long periods of time. I do get, you know, concerned about some people who are very adamant about, you know, reopening the economy too soon of, you know, the despair of potentially, you know, them becoming unemployed because a lot of people who have been very hateful to unhoused people or people who are low income could potentially be that way now in the midst of a pandemic. So this can now affect anyone. And I think that that's been incredibly problematic uh, for a lot of people to see, you know, people are really struggling, you know, my folks in general, because the Denver Public Library is closed. And that was one of the largest day shelters in town. My folks, when they're homeless or transitionally housed, when they inject, they inject outside in alleys, in parks and in business bathrooms. So with the business closed down, they're they're not able to inject indoors. So they're injecting outdoors, public injecting, public overdoses, things like that. Um, and no access to water or ways oh, to... Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So we're really nervous about soft skin tissue infections mm-hmm. increasing along with hepatitis C increasing because hepatitis C lives in injecting water for 62 days. Are you still able to provide testing for hepatitis and, and your usual services? Do you, do you know what's happening? We can't, we can't test right now. No, yeah. because we subcontract through Denver Public Health. So we aren't able to test. And a lot of people are asking for testing. Mm-hmm. What I also think is interesting is there are a lot of people who are at home right now who are drinking to self-medicate, who are very othered to other people who use drugs to self-medicate often too, you know? So part of it is, you know, you remember when Hancock for like two hours, people thought they weren't going to have access to alcohol um, yeah. about eight weeks ago. Um, right. you know, everybody ran out and like picked it up and stuff like that. And there was a really interesting larger conversation that was happening on social media because some people were like, oh no, you know, alcohol shouldn't be an essential service. While other people were saying, it absolutely should be because we don't have the treatment beds for people in withdrawal, but we also have a safe, safe supply in alcohol and people who, you know, drug exceptionalism are day drinking at home and feeling safe and self-medicating are hateful to people who use heroin, who are unhoused, who are self-medicating, right? So I think there's a larger conversation to be had too about just kind of all sorts of drugs in the midst of a pandemic, whether or not you inject them. Yeah, I, I'm hopeful but not realistically hopeful that that conversation will happen I oh think. it's good we're gonna make it happen elizabeth good good <laughs> make it happen. yeah because I, I i can't remember the numbers but it, but something like liquor store sales around denver are up you know 55 100 percent. who knows totally. yeah and i think the american exceptionalism of just like refusing to look at these questions is is interesting Well, and we've never done a good job talking about drug use, right? The war on drug users has been incredibly racist in classes for over 40 years. The just say no didn't work. Incarceration never worked. That should never have been the plan. And so as Americans, we're not really even taught like what that even looks like. So having to deprogram that as an adult is very difficult, even some of, for some of my chaotic drug users, you know, of just like, I'm, I'm told this is bad. I'm, I'm not supposed to be doing this, but it happened. It's like, it happens. Well, how can we push forward today? You know, like some, some people will never live a life of recovery and that is fine. We need to be fine with that because drugs do a lot of things for a lot of people. You know, meth is very similar to, um, you know, for ADHD of Adderall. Yeah. A lot of people have a very difficult time accessing other medications. Meth works. Meth makes you feel really great and powerful. When you feel like shit and are depressed, you want to feel really great and powerful. So there are a lot of uh, reasons why people use drugs. Yeah. And I think there are two sort of twin questions because a similar question is that 
American exceptionalism about public health more generally is really, really emphasized by this. You know, South Korea had its first case the same day we did. They have a strong public health system that hopped into action and did the right thing. And their rates of death are, you know, just negligible compared to ours. Um, Mm -hmm. Other countries where everyone can prescribe buprenorphine, they don't have the overdose death rates we do. You know, I think we need to look at the whole world and take a really better look at what we're doing, which is failing so often. I appreciate you saying that too, because Vancouver actually has heroin-assisted treatment for a safe supply because they were so concerned about the disruption of drug sales potentially and folks not only going to withdraw, but using sources that they hadn't used before because they have so much fentanyl up there. So they have a safer supply uh, of drugs too, because there's, you know, all these issues. What's interesting too, is that you know, for, for the United States healthcare system, I mean, in the beginning, eight weeks ago, there was a lot of messaging of like, don't go to the hospital, call your primary care physician first. And everybody's like, we don't fucking have a primary care physician. <laughs> you know, like, like a lot of people try to stay outside of the healthcare system because it's so expensive and difficult. There's so many barriers, you know, and my folks in particular have a very tumultuous relationship with healthcare providers in general that, you know, that kind of all the messaging in the beginning never really related to a lot of my folks at all, morning water, housing, or uh, contact your PCP. Call your doctor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally. yeah. Um, I, I always sort of felt embarrassed when I heard that because I had a PCP and we never, Dylan and I never, we never go to the doctor and, um, <laughs> and like we never seek medical care. And so the last time I called her, which was like seven years ago, the secretary was like, well, you haven't been here in six years. So we <laughs> You. So I don't have a PCP. I don't know who oh, I Oh, that's funny. Yeah. yeah. They're like, well, 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 Elizabeth, <laughs> you call again. <laughs> I'll come to you for basic healthcare needs. Right. Um, just going back to that, I've been really curious about sort of supply chains and if fentanyl is being added to heroin. Are there, are there, I can't imagine there are shortages of drugs, but are there shifting elements of the supply chain or, or different ways that people are getting drugs? Are people changing substances? Right. But we're not seeing any disruption right now in Denver. Um, Mm -hmm. That could change, you know, drugs sell themselves, but we're not seeing any disruption. We do know that we have, so we have fentanyl testing strips that folks can test their drugs to see if fentanyl or fentanyl analogs are present in their drugs. We are seeing Mm -hmm. it in heroin. We are seeing it in a lot of meth too. And so what's interesting is like with that, once you know fentanyl's in your drug and you use the strips, now you can do something about it before you use, right? So there's a behavior change that can happen. We have folks, you know, when they come back and we're like, did you use them or lose them? If they use them and they're positive, you know, we kind of ask, you know, so, so what did you do about it? And people say, I used less. I told other people that were purchasing from the seller. I made sure my friend had Narcan. Um, some people threw away the drugs entirely, right? If mm. I'm a meth user and I'm opioid naive, I know I'm at higher risk of overdosing. Mm-hmm. So we're really always trying to have those conversations in here. But sometimes you don't always know your seller, right? I mean, there's just, there's a lot of middlemen on the streets and things like that. Um, but by the time it gets down to being purchased on the streets, it's been cut by a variety of different people. The more drugs you have, the more money you can make. So nobody's ever really sure what's in their drugs when they use them. So it's nice to have those fentanyl testing strips um, so that folks can do something about it. And it's an overdose prevention tool, right? Yeah. You know, they could do a tester shot, do a little bit. So that's been really nice. We do, you know, we always see a lot of meth use in the winter here locally. A lot of our folks who are unhoused inject meth in the winter. 
so be, if they don't want to go into the shelter so they can walk around the city and not lay down and freeze to death. Mm. So using meth in our community in the winter is a, a very much a survival method. We don't see that. I mean, people obviously still use meth uh, in the summertime. It's just not needed as a survival method because it's warmer out and you're not at risk of freezing to death. So, so that kind of happens. That's a summer to winter kind of thing. Could you take a wild guess or is just there's no way of knowing how much of the meth or heroin in Denver has fentanyl in it? Um, I have some, actually I have some newer numbers. So what's tricky about these numbers is, so some people could be purchasing, purchasing from the same seller, right? And it mm-hmm. come up positive. So it's the same batch, but they wouldn't know that. So I do have a little info we just did the other day. So we've been giving out fentanyl testing strips to our participants for the last two years. Uh, We've trained 1,600 people on how to use a fentanyl testing strip. So if they've never had it, it's a three-minute training just to know how to use it. We've gotten 2,000 results back. 42% of those results uh, showed that we were positive for fentanyl. So we see the the drug breakdown of that with 45% of the positive results were in heroin, 34% were in meth. 13% 13% were in goofballs, which is heroin and meth together. 5% was in a poly substance use, which is multiple drugs other than goofballs. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then uh, 3% were either cocaine, crack, or opioids or pills. So we are seeing them in a lot of press pills, but we have that in kind of an other category. So we have, um, so, oh, sorry. No, and so this is new data. Have you done this in years past? Can you compare? So this is updated with the two years. That's two years of data. Two years, yeah. 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 So I don't know if there's, if there's more, you know, like this quarter, Mm -hmm. um, what would be nice for us is if the medical examiner could tell us if there's more overdoses, you know, kind of happening now, other States seem to have, um, more updated data. I mean, I, we just got 2019 overdose data, so it would be nice to what the coroner's seeing. What I did get yelled at for last year, uh, was somebody yelled at me that they didn't think fentanyl was here because the Denver police department wasn't seeing it in their labs. And I was like, well, maybe they haven't arrested all of it. Like that doesn't mean anything to me of Denver, you know, Denver police data of seizures. What I want is street drugs that people are using right now that could be tested. Yeah. And the the strips don't assess quantity. They're just presence or absence of fentanyl. Correct. Have you you been, what have you been seeing or anecdotally in recent rates of overdose? Well, so it's hard to tell me, you know, we do a lot of, we have Narcan, Naloxone, right? And we're doing a lot of reversals for that too. It's hard to tell because sometimes people don't want to call 911 right? Because they'll get the cops. So they're taking care of it themselves, which is totally fine. Or there's been, there could be a delay in 911 coming. So we haven't, we haven't seen any like recent spikes, but we've definitely been very busy refilling naloxone for people. And also we take a lot of data down of what happened. Did that person, uh, you know, what else was on board? Where-ish did it happen? I don't want exact spots, but ish in the city. Did you call 911? What happened? Did Were paramedics nice to you? Stuff like that. Because people also want to talk about it. If you've ever reversed an overdose, it's really fucking scary. And so, you know, you're so worried about the person that's overdosed and now hopefully is alive and trying to figure them out that a lot of times people don't take care of themselves. So what we like is that when they come in here and they tell us about the reversal that they've done, you know, a lot of times for a friend or a loved one, they're able to debrief with our staff to talk about like, you know, some of those questions are really good too, just to be like, oh yeah, that did it. No, I didn't have any problems putting it together. Yeah, no, the training was really awesome. Here's what I did. You know, and so people really need that opportunity to debrief because there's so much trauma, not only in the drug using community, but the larger community on overdoses and overdose deaths. For example, people overdose publicly 
meaning somebody else is going to come up on them. So Mm -hmm. that's a barista, that's a cop, that's somebody walking by on the street. That's a larger community trauma issue that we're not getting to because we don't know those people. And if they don't reach out to us, then, you know, that becomes incredibly problematic, which is why business owners have been extraordinarily supportive of supervised use sites because they are really struggling with people overdosing and their staff coming up on people who have overdosed in their bathrooms. And that can be scary for everybody. Yeah. I don't know if this is just something we want to cut out of this interview because I don't even want to plant the idea, but I was incredibly disturbed yesterday to read of a police department in Indiana that's instructed its officers to not reverse overdoses because they're finding that when people wake up, you know, they're coughing and spluttering and yelling and they don't want to expose their officers. So their policy now is to not reverse overdoses. Yes, I hated that. Oh, <laughs> I really, truly hated that. And I can understand right now why people wouldn't want to rescue Breeze. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but at least give Narcan and then stand back if that's going to be an issue because that's incredibly problematic. And I have to believe there's some sort of liability with not doing it at this point. What's nice is, is that, you know, no one's ever been sued in the United States for using naloxone. But yeah. it's, you know, that could be interesting. But yeah, like that just sucked. Yeah, yeah. Just interested also in, in for clients who are trying to access treatment, is it harder or has the landscape changed for people who you're trying to connect to treatment? Uh, so the, the clinics have been very lovely, the methadone clinics. We are concerned because for methadone, you have to have a valid ID. And because the DMVs are closed, that's become an incredibly huge barrier for folks. And it was already a huge barrier for folks, if you, to be quite honest. I've tried to go to the legislature multiple times to get them to not have the IDs for methadone because that's a barrier for folks. Suboxone, uh, you know, you can go into the emergency department at Denver Health and get access to that today. People are asking, but not at, a, not at any larger rate than they were before COVID. Inpatient continues to be a story of hope. So almost nobody can go to inpatient. Medicaid still doesn't cover it. And now with the budget crisis that Colorado has, we probably won't be able to see Medicaid cover it until 2021 or 2022. So really nobody goes to inpatient. And then we've got 50% of our folks are stimulant users upon intake. And so there's almost virtually nothing for stimulant users in general. I mean, Mm -hmm. we we need to start having a larger conversation about medication-assisted treatment for stimulant users. Yeah. It's just, always looked a little grim. <laughs> yeah, that sounds more than a little grim. I mean, it's always been grim and this sounds like it's a little grimmer. The DEA has passed, has eased some of its rules on methadone for yes. current, you know, what they call stable users and for telehealth for starting buprenorphine. Has that actually translated into real benefits for any of your clients? So we've been super pumped about the methadone take-homes. I think they're at two weeks yeah. right now. You and can we can go hope- up for a month. Oh, we love it. We love yeah, it. Love it. So 20 we, days, I think. we really hope that that continues on post COVID. Yeah. So I'm hoping that some clinics are getting some really good data so that we don't revert back because that's, that's been an issue for a lot of folks for a lot of years. The telehealth has been tough. A lot of my folks don't have access to computers and the phoning stuff has been tough because, you know, I have you know, we only have one line here. And so some folks are trying to do stuff over the phone with their service providers. And then we're kind of struggling because I don't really have the capacity for folks to do so. So our folks are struggling. We also know that folks in the recovery community are struggling because they don't, you know, they're having to do move most of their stuff online. And if they don't have good connections, um, that can be incredibly problematic as well. So just, just so I'm clear, you have one phone line? Yes. Mm -hmm. Wow. What about a budget for PPE? Where's that coming from? 
Uh, we have a lot of generous people that are siphoning off a lot of <laughs> stuff for us, which is very nice. Um, but thankfully, we were able – We. Uh, I have a coworker that I don't know how she knew, but we, for some reason, it, around December, had a whole bunch of hand sanitizer delivered. So we were in a really good spot on hand sanitizer in general, which is really great. You know, we have access to gloves, we have access to masks. We also have the, through the generosity of our entire community, people have donated masks for our participants because, you know, now with the new mask order in Denver, you can't get Uh on a bus or you can't go into a store without a mask on. And so our folks now get masks from us. And then I also send the outreach team out with extra masks. So if they come up on anybody who might not be our folks, we want to make sure that they have a mask too. And then we're really encouraging folks um, to, you know, safer smoking as risk reduction, smoking over and injecting, and especially not sharing, you know, meth pipes and crack pipes that we're now giving out crack pipe stems and we have meth pipes are on the way. Uh, And folks Mm -hmm. are really pumped about that too. We also have safer snorting kits. So folks have access. So we want to make sure that, you know, people aren't sharing. And it's always, you know, been about the syringes really is that, but we also want to make sure it's about pipes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Too. I've heard that some harm reduction centers are are mailing supplies to people. Yes. Did you, what, what have you guys done to, especially when, you know, the stay at home orders were at their most restrictive, what did you do differently? Well, I see, honestly, I don't have the capacity to do all that mailing. Mm-hmm. Um, they continue to come in here. And so mm-hmm. actually other syringe ex- uh, exchange programs have closed down to one day or a couple of days. So we have some folks that are coming from outside of the city in to exchange with us because they can't access their normal syringe exchange provider. So we're trying to do our very best of getting services to everybody without my staff getting sick. You know, I have a very small staff, but we want to make sure that we're trying to get everybody the the services that they need. So we do. So our injection supplies are not prepackaged. So folks don't, you know, their hands aren't going in a bunch of different bins. The syringes have always been prepackaged. And then we have the naloxone, the fentanyl testing strips, resources, referrals. They can get mail here. And then because a lot of the meals in town have closed down, because a lot of them have been volunteer-based, usually by older folks, we now have snack packs that we give out to folks. And then the Colorado Criminal Justice Reform Coalition, three mornings a week, bring over breakfast burritos for our folks so they have one hearty meal a day. So people have just been very generous, making sure that our folks are trying to get everything that they need, plus the really good health information. And I forgot to mention earlier is also we, uh, HRAC staff, helped uh, folks sign up for their stimulus checks. So we had about 70 folks come in because they didn't, they don't have the library to have a computer. And it was such an online process that it took about 15 minutes. And so they signed up for it. So we have about $72,000 coming to our participants that will be spent locally and invested in the local economy. They're not going to be ordering on Amazon. They're going to be at the local gas station or motels and stuff like that. Yeah, that's amazing. I saw that on your most recent email and just, just so impressed that from, you know, in the thick of this epidemic, you still had almost a 3000 syringe access episodes. Yeah. So more than a 1000 people still doing new intakes. I mean, Narcan trainings, fentanyl trainings, like you've been clearly incredibly active through this. Yeah, well, it's Uh, important. These are things that people need. And, and, you know, in the beginning, too, it was like, we didn't know day to day what this was looking like. And in the beginning, we thought maybe this is a one or two month thing. I mean, yeah. now this is going to look so different. And what's mildly exciting, if you can find something mildly exciting throughout mm-hmm. all this, is that there's going to be a new normal 
of yeah. we're not going to go back to the same old way. And, and that's okay for a lot of things. It's okay to chip away at these systems. It's very interesting how, you know, we can do things differently in the midst of a pandemic. It's like, okay, so it is possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I'm glad you said that because one of my questions to you, I was sort of debating whether to ask if there was were any silver linings or any sort of cause for optimism. So I'm glad you you started that because it is such a dark time. But um, well, and our folks have been so loving, kind and generous with everything taken away from them, the community, the uncertainty of the future. They've been so loving and kind and so thankful and, you know, worried about their fellow community members. Um, you know, like, are they housed in a motel? Are they sick? Are they in the hospital? Did they pass away? You know, like there's yeah. so much love in this community that, uh, and they're just, like I said, they've been very thankful that we've been staying open. And it's like, well, of course, like we would do this with one person now. We can't do it with one person, but you know, this is, we want to be with our people. And so there's, we, I was very, very excited when we figured out for sure that we were going to be essential workers because we couldn't imagine not being with our folks during this time. So we're coming out, you know, a more uh, tight knit community of people who inject drugs and are unhoused, making sure that our folks have good factual health information to be that grassroots ground army to their friends. They're sharing their snack packs with their friends who don't have a service provider they can trust, but because they don't inject drugs, they don't come here. And so, sharing accurate information. Yep, and yep. this is a secondary training effect that's hugely important. Yeah. And um, we needed that. We all needed that. Yeah. You're clearly engaged in direct service, but you're also an important policy thinker and advocate. And what has this exposed for you about what we need to change in law, policy, and practice that wasn't already on your radar screen, if anything? I think that uh, we, I mean, we've got to do a better job of uh, getting people housed. There's got to be a better way. People need to stop talking about it and start doing something about it. And in a housing first model, you don't, yeah. I don't, you shouldn't have to live, try to live a life of recovery on the streets with all the crisis management that happens there to be deemed worthy to be able to be inside. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, so much stress out there. Uh, you know, it just really doubled down for me that I, we need a supervised use site in our community yeah. because we know that people are publicly injecting and they're, you know, and it's safer inside. And they were trying to do it in business bathrooms and they were trying to do it in shelters. And when that's not the case, now it's public and people are upset about that. And it's like, well, this is why, you know, yeah. um, and especially with the overdoses and especially in towns where local law enforcement won't use Narcan. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a little concerned because of the state legislature. Uh, you know, we do have a bill in as part of the opioid interim committee. You know, they do prevention bills, recovery, treatment. There's a harm reduction bill that has some really good stuff in there that I don't know is going to pass this year. So we have to wait another year for folks to do the right thing. For example, one of them in there is making it very clear that pharmacists can sell syringes. Pharmacies can sell syringes now in the state of Colorado. The law is just very nebulous. So we wanted to tighten that up. As yeah. part of this bill as well, we wanted to uh, go around boards of health to be able to start syringe access programs in counties around the state. We tried for 10 years. We, we gave boards of health the right thing to do. And if they're not going to pass it, we've got to go around them because, you know, people are dying and people need to be access, especially with HIV and hepatitis C rates, as they are in Weld County and El Paso County, we've got to do something different. So that would be in this bill too. So there is some concern that it won't pass this year because they're so hyper-focused, which I totally understand, but that's going to become incredibly problematic for one more year. Yeah. 
it does seem like some of those some of those proposals, like making it clear to pharmacists that they're not at risk if they sell syringes, those aren't particularly expensive. No. You, you just feel like the attention is just not there anymore uh, for the syringes to be sold. For for a number of the policies that are you know you're trying to enact yeah. here, they're not particularly expensive. No, um, oh, no, there's I no hope- fiscal note for that. No, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it remains to be seen what the multi-billion dollar shortfall in the state will do to all our lives. But Oh, um, I don't envy them at all. (laughs) Just curious also, has there been anything else in the last couple of months that's, or anything that's surprised you? Anything we haven't talked about? Any recurrent themes from your clients that you wouldn't have anticipated? Well, I think what I also appreciate is, and I read this recently, is uh, drug possession arrests are down because it's not worth Denver Police Department's time, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And they don't want to be arresting people. And Denver Police Department and law enforcement in general for the last few years have not wanted to arrest people. They know they can't arrest their way out of this. They've really shifted more to public health than a lot of other folks. So as far as I understand, like possession arrests are down like 89% for April. So I'd like to see that continue to go too. And we will will be talking to law enforcement as part of this episode or series too. So we'll get their perspective. But yeah, you know, I I was listening to your previous episode with Josh Bloom and just your remark stuck in my head that you're at that point, at least you were getting more referrals from police officers than from physicians. Oh, I still do. Oh, I get more encouragement of our programming from police than I do from docs. I get more you know, invitations to the table from law enforcement than I do from healthcare providers. Uh, yeah, it's very strange. Yeah. But it's really yeah. funny too, because in, in another way is like anybody that sticks with us uh, with law enforcement and is cultivated as a harm reductionist is in a very high power position, especially right now in the Denver Police Department, which has been very really great to watch too. But commanders, division chiefs, the chief, are all, many of them are harm reductionists. And so that's been really great to cultivate over the years. Now, law enforcement does not fall from the sky as a harm reductionist, obviously, but mm-hmm. really like, you know, chipping away the law enforcement industrial complex of what works, what doesn't, law enforcement's very clear, they should not be leading drug policy or drug policy reform. You know, they, drug policy in general, right? They need, they know they need to get out of the way and we're right there. Now, what we've also done is we've done a great job of chipping away at, you know, law enforcement and criminalizing drug use. However, when we push that out of the criminal justice system and away from law enforcement, it's not like the medical community is open arms and saying, come in here and nestle in my bosom, right? So what happens is it's almost like the medical community oftentimes has their arms crossed. So it's the harm reductionists in the middle that we're taking it on and saying, okay, but we can't prescribe. You know, we don't have prescribing powers to be able to do that. So it just gets a little frustrating sometimes too, when you do all this work to get it out of one industrial complex and then the healthcare providers in the medical profession aren't, some are interested, but as a, and as an industry, not really. Yeah. And that's shameful. And I mean, that is the oath and the job of a physician is to reduce harm and care for patients. You guys are harm reductionists. (laughs) It's so embarrassing. (laughs) We'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. I mean, I think the problem is too, is we spent so much time chipping away at one end when we parallel chipping away at another. So it's not all on the medical community. It's on, you know, the rest of us as drug policy reformers too, of we need to be chipping away in parallel. Yeah. I just feel like you're doing way more of the chipping than- 
It's exhausting. That's why they give me my own day. (laughs) Remember, this is your week. That's right. A good point. Thank you, Emergency Medical Minute. I appreciate that. (laughs) Any words of advice? Many of our listeners are physicians, PAs, nurses, paramedics, EMTs. Any words of advice on how to care for patients with active addictions who they're seeing in this time of COVID? Sure. I think um, if you know that there's somebody who injects, refer to your local syringe exchange program. So we're, there's 14 of us in the state. So if you wherever you are, Google the closest one because anybody who injects should have access to that. I think it's important to recognize just because somebody's a chaotic drug user does not mean what they're presenting to you for it has anything to do with their drug use. So oftentimes if they don't bring it up and it has nothing to do with what they're presenting on, then mm-hmm. there's no reason for you to talk about it either because mm-hmm. there's not really much that you can offer. And it's just more kind of stigma and shame of like having to bring it up again and or lie. I mean, how many times do you see abscesses and people say it's a spider bite, right? That people say that because they don't want to say it's an abscess because they don't want to tell you that they inject drugs because they don't want to fucking hear it lovingly. Like mm-hmm. I drink. Mm-hmm. I never tell healthcare providers that I drink because I don't want to hear it. So it already sometimes starts very distrustful because they've had so many issues with other healthcare providers before. If somebody's in there for, for an abscess, have a conversation about using an alcohol pad. Sometimes people will use an alcohol pad, but they go back and forth on their skin multiple times. Well, as we know, that's moving bacteria around, but they may not know that. You know, anytime you break your skin, you're at risk of infection. Are they licking their needle? There's so much bacteria in your mouth. You know, so it's interesting because there's a physician um, that we've cultivated over the years and he came to us and thought he was a harm reductionist. Bless his heart. He wasn't, but we got him there, you know? And so now he like really is. And so he's like, you know what? When I talk about with people, if they're not interested in getting into treatment, that's totally fine. Then we start talking about their injection practices. Then we start talking about their vein care because I want them to leave with something proactive today. And that's what I like about harm reduction too. It's something action oriented you can do today. It's not out of your hands. There's nothing that can possibly happen. Like there's something really positive that that person can really identify with. Even if it's just that referral. Oh, hey, have you ever gone to the harm reduction action center? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think I heard Lisa on a podcast. Oh, Lisa. Oh, okay. There's kind of that general sense of like, oh, okay, so you know about this so I can talk to you about it. Because otherwise, stigma and shame have been very clear. Do not talk about being someone who injects with someone you think doesn't inject because you don't want to hear about it. So I think, you know, those conversations. Yeah. I also think from the clinician's point of view, it's way more rewarding to be useful and effective than to give a stigmatizing speech. And Totally. Well, it sucks. And it's just like somebody's mom, you know, you just feel like a nag. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. Somebody said that to me recently of like, why don't you refer to treatment more? I was like, we refer to treatment, but only when somebody brings it up to me. I don't want this to be another place that they come to and I bring it up all the time. So then what do they start doing? They start dodging me, you yeah. know, like, like, just like you would dodge your mom <laughs> on yeah. questions. Like, we have to be like that kind of mom free place. But when you bring it up, heck yeah, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to talk to you about it. But only when you want to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a level of respect for others yeah. there. Hard for many to wrap their heads around. I also want to be sure that we have, um, I know your hours will probably be shifting and changing, but just so we have it here, what your current hours are, if a listener wants to refer a patient or a family member or themselves or come see you, when are you open? Sure. 
So Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to noon is when we're moving and shaking for active people who inject drugs to come in and do a one-time intake. It takes about 10 minutes and then they can get access. They don't need an ID. They know who they are. We just want them as they are. If you are somebody, a healthcare provider that's interested in a tour, you can email us or call us hrac.denver at gmail.com. That comes directly to me. And we can schedule a time for you to tour in the afternoons when participants are not present. Um, to see what we are and what we aren't. If you're a family member who has somebody that's struggling, you're welcome to reach out via email and we can try to get you to the right person. Our mornings are just for people who inject drugs and that's a confidentiality issue. So we want to make sure that folks have access to that. And for listeners who are interested in donating or volunteering, what's the best way to, to send you money or masks or food or whatever? Oh, Elizabeth, you had me at hello. Okay, so we <laughs> are at uh, harmreductionactioncenter.org. And we have, you know, a get involved tab of how to volunteer, interns, we're always looking for interns, and then how to donate. Also on there is our address, 112 East 8th Avenue, that's in Denver. 80203. And so we take cash check or charge, but also in-kind donations. We have an Amazon wish list that folks can uh, get for our folks too, of hygiene items, uh, socks, that sort of thing. And then we also are on social media, much like Emergency Medical Minute. So it's important if you want to keep up with what we're doing or share some of our content to start you know, educating friends and family in your social networks, that would be great. So Harm Reduction Action Center on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, and then Twitter is HREC underscore Denver. Well, thank you so much. Oh, and thank you thank so much for taking the time out of your busy life, Lisa Rayville week to speak with us. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. 